Trash on cast where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is uh, the movie Hairspray. It is all about the uh, the prayer life of hair follicles. And, uh, <laughs> it's hair, a documentary, right? Hair's prey. Uh, so hair's, it's a religious documentary it, it abso- about the uh, women who are beehive hair in church. The exact beehive hair itself is a uh, it's, it's it's an ornament. It's also something of an icon. It's a, a thin, sacrament. It's, it creates a thin place in which one can contact the divine. And, <laughs> you can contact the divine through hairspray. So, uh, well, you could you could contact something anyway. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. I, I thought we were doing like a whole like Ouija board contacting divine. Uh, the dearly departed divine thing. That's funny too. Yeah. So uh, John Waters' hairspray is the film of the week. Let's go ahead and identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain. Who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon and Dalton. I have told you about that hair, all ratted up like a teenage Jezebel. Like indeed, indeed. <laughs> Who are you, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and when I watch Arthur, I'm embarrassed to be white. <laughs> My name is Dustin Sells, and adult, and I have to tell you that's a hair don't. And we're just going to pick. Is this whole episode going to be about hair. my hair? Yeah, it it's an intervention. Bunch of petty bitches. That's what you two are. <laughs> Jealous. And so, yeah, we're going to be talking about hairspray. In case this is the first time you've ever tuned into the Good Trash Genre Cast, just to warn you, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that means there will be spoilerific spoiler riches of the film and its plot points. However, we will give you the briefest of reprieves from that by uh, giving a synopsis from the voice of the cinema, then our quick thumbs up, thumbs down review. Which we spoiler free. We will play a game which may or may not involve the mildest of spoilers of this film and others in its orbit. And then when we will get down to business, there'll be a musical cue to let you know that that's happening. And then all spoiler bets are off. You have been warned. So, without any further ado, warning, warning, Will Robinson. <laughs> danger, danger, Will Robinson. Uh, let's hear that synopsis, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema. A pleasantly plump teenager teaches 1962 Baltimore a thing or two about integration after landing a spot on a local TV dance show. Well, there you go. It's, That's uh, it. It's, it's Dick Clark's American Bandstand, except for like uh, the sort of local version of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it Baltimore-only specific kind of stuff uh, going on with that. Ricky Lake, Divine, John Waters directing. Good. Jerry Stiller. Jerry Stiller, yes, which was fun to Sonny see. Sonny Bono. Sonny Bono. Yeah. Uh, Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry yeah. was fun yeah. to see. Yeah, I was like, oh, there's Debbie Harry. A vitamin fa- C. An incredibly young Josh Charles, which yeah. was a hoot. Yeah, that was fun to uh, see. Dustin, just uh, real quick for the listener, uh, how, how does this fit into the context of our, our Good Trash musical marathon? Uh, well, I, I would say that it is not as far as it fits in as far as like good trash itself to be good trash. Uh, or... Both, I think we should address really quickly both that and also the fact that this is not technically a musical. It's no, a dance it's, movie. It's a dance movie, but there's a lot. I mean, it relies really, really heavily yeah. on the use of music, so the soundtrack is as important in, yeah. a, in a way very similar to a musical. Well, you, and I feel like the dance numbers kind of fit um, narratively into the film the way musical numbers would, which is kind of makes it very clear why this film was turned into a musical. 
Right. And in terms of good trash itself, uh, you're not going to find its way into a film studies course because uh, John Waters has a much more personal, much more individually sort of um, noted kinds of films out there. Musicals themselves or dance movies in general, uh, there are much more notable uh, entries in that as well. So it is a good movie. It's a lot of fun, but it's not necessarily the one that's going to get a lot of press, a lot of conversation, even it, unless it was something very, very John Waters specific uh, in terms of a course. And uh, I think that class would be pretty rare to find indeed. So there you go, dear listener. Uh, you kind of know what's happening, where we're all starting. Let's talk about our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Do you like Hairspray? And if so, or if not, why or why not? I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, I, I, there's some weird stuff that we have to unpack uh, when we get to analysis. Um, but I, I think what the film is doing is really interesting. The way it is engaging with um, the early 60s, uh, you know, being a film made in the, the mid 80s, late 80s? 88. 88. And being a film made in the late 80s, looking back about 30 years and kind of engaging with the early 60s. And, you know, John Waters being a, a, a native of Baltimore, kind of examining a, a city famously that uh, has been plagued by, um, you know, both segregation and uh, other systemic issues that uh, come out of uh, systematic racism. Um, I, I think watching John work in that narrative and in that time frame, that time frame where he would have been a kid watching these these dance shows, um, you know, coming home after school. I, I, I like, I'm always interested when a filmmaker chooses a film that's kind of like a reexamination of their own childhood to some extent. Uh, and, and for that alone, like, I'm a kind of a big fan of that. Uh, this is only, I'd never seen the original uh, Hairspray. I've seen the, uh, the adaptation of the Broadway show that they did in the early 2000s um, with uh, John Travolta as a... Uh, uh, Edna Turnblad, which is fun. Um, but this is only maybe the second or third John Waters film that I've ever actually seen. Uh, so it was fun to watch just for, for that reason alone. Uh, in terms of my enjoyment, though, I, I, I it's fun. The dance numbers are good. Ricky Lake's a, Lake is a fantastic dancer. A really surprisingly good dancer, yes. Yeah, she, she, she kills it. Well, uh, not that surprisingly, because apparently she destroyed it on Dancing with the Stars a couple of years ago. So she still got it, apparently. Um, and again... Really, that is kind of the stroke of genius of this film is John Waters finding Ricky Lake and putting her in this movie because uh, she is a great on-screen presence. You can see why people wanted to give her a talk show uh, in the 90s because uh, at the young, like the youngest person to host a daytime talk show ever, um, she, she has a real camera presence uh, and charisma that is felt. And really, I think she carries a lot of this movie. Um, again, the supporting players are all fun. Divine's fun as her mom. Jerry Stiller is fun as her dad. Uh, Sonny Bono and uh, Debbie Harry, as we've already mentioned, as uh, her rival, Amber Von Tussle's parents. Um, all of those parts are really fun, but I think the movie does kind of live and die on Ricky Lake. And that's a good thing because she carries the movie quite successfully, I, I feel like. Um, there, there's a real intentional cheapness to the film that I love. That it's just really great to see a filmmaker very successfully work within their means um, and find an interesting way to impart that indie sensibility into their visual style. Um, all of these things, I think, really work about it. Um, pacing is a little weird. Uh, it takes quite a while to figure out where the movie is going. If you And I was already kind of aware, again, because of having seen the musical version, but it does take a while for the plot of the film to develop and realize, oh, this is going to be about... The, the segregation of this this daytime dance show, right? It takes about half the movie for 
it to reveal that that is going to be the crux of the end of the film. And that's just a little too long, I feel like, almost. But overall, I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, it was a good watch. Happy we're, we're talking about it. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton What do you say, Arthur Gordon? Did you like Hairspray? Why or why not? I, I, I did enjoy watching it. I This was my first, I think, John Waters experience. Well, second. I've seen Crybaby before, I suppose. Um, but uh, I, I think Dalton's covered a lot of it. I, I, it's very quirky, and I appreciate that kind of quirk to it and that kind of oddball sensibility that it has for itself and almost an anti-realist kind of narrative uh, working. Um and, and, and it's interesting. I, I don't feel like this movie has much plot. I think it has events, but I don't feel like there really is a plot that's driving the film, even though we've got this kind of you know change in direction about halfway through. It's episodic a bit, yeah. Yeah, but you know, on paper, it seems like the whole plot would be about her trying to get on this program, but that happens real quick. And uh, I, I like that about it. One of my favorite films is Ocean's Eleven, the, the Soderbergh version, uh, because there's it's so smooth in that you never... I mean... You'd think there's going to be a lot of massive conflicts in that film that are going to, you know, deviate the plot, but it doesn't. It is straightforward. Here's what we're going to do, and they do it. And I think this has that same mentality story-wise in that she sets out to do this thing and does it. And there's really no, you know, there are a little bit of minor conflict, but it doesn't really drag the story out of what it's doing uh, throughout the film. You're right. It's an interesting choice to kind of let your protagonist have their goal at, like, the end of the first act. Yeah. And, like, let's let's go ahead and take that story, make it the beginning of the movie, and how does the story evolve out of that? Yeah. is a, a really interesting choice. Yeah. And, and and you don't see it happen a lot. And I think it is it, – it kind of changes uh, the way you walk in through this and your expectations for the film. Uh, Ricky Lake is great. She's got great charisma. She's also got great confidence, which is very important in that role, and she just owns it. Uh, she owns the entire movie, and Divine is a blast uh, pulling double duty uh, and, and carrying both parts well, and just a lot of fun there. And I'd never really, you know, seen Divine work, and so she's just killing it throughout the film here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it is. There's this kind of intimate, fun element to it. Oh, and it's trying, I think, to tackle a lot of things. Definitely satiring kind of the the '60s and that world that we're, you know kind of familiar with kind of like we did with little shop of horrors you know and we talked about at length you know setting uh stories in the 50s and 60s and working that for satire and i think that's what waters is trying to do here as well and there's just some real surreal his his character itself as the psychiatrist is just bonkers with his like hypno gun and laser prod and like what is even happening uh, with this guy, he is... He just shows up for absolute insanity. Yeah. And I, I love it. It is off the rails by that point. But uh, it is, it's a good time. And uh, I'm glad we got around to this one. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also like Hairspray. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I, as you guys have already mentioned, Ricky Lake just kills it. Um, I like the supporting cast as well, as we've mentioned. Uh, the, the style itself, that use of camp, and uh, this is going to be a major part of our discussion later in the show, so I'll leave it at that. But I do like the way that in which it is deployed. I typically find movies like this, though, a little bit boring. Uh, racism is bad. Oh, well, congratulations. You're so courageous. Yeah, what a hot take. Uh, hot take. You know, even in 1988, like, segregation is just terrible, you know. Uh, yeah. And so if it was simply that, and there were a slew of films being made then, a slew of films being made now, that sort of deal with the same kind of idea. Like, oh, no, they won't let a black kid do this. They won't let, you know, they won't integrate this sort of situation. Uh, is it gross to say, would you swim in a pool, you know, that was uh, integrated? You know, those kind of things. And people who say that it's a bad thing, they're nasty and they're gross. It, 
yeah, does that, but I think what it's able to sort of incorporate some additional layers to that. Well, uh, and I think if you're going to address historical racism when we have not solved current day racism, uh, you have to introduce additional layers, right? Right. And so I, I think the film does something interesting in terms of using racial integration as a code for other forms of intersectionality. And we'll definitely address a lot of that uh, later on in the show as well. But yeah, so it's able to do uh, something that I tend to find just boring. You know, I, I think I like the Disney movie Perfect Harmony. I don't know if you guys remember that or not. It's like an all boys choir, and there's this one black kid that's like the son of the garden, gardener or groundskeeper, or whatever. He's got a great voice. And it's all just work. Working really, really hard to get the opportunity for this kid to sing with these white kids, and I'm just bored, just bored, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and if this was simply that, we're going to let these kids dance together, doggone it, because it's yeah. terrible for you to say they can't. I'm like, just shut up, okay? I mean, yes, I agree that's bad, and uh, it's good that integration happened, but you have to say something a little bit more than that in this skin, this very, very surface-level Disney eyes kind of story. And this is a very Disney kind of story, except John Waters. <laughs> the outlier. And then it becomes something really interesting. Yeah. And and so that makes me really happy. So uh, it would be a movie otherwise. I'd be like, pass. But this is, turns out to be loads and loads of fun. Uh, but for thematics, for the analytical kind of reasons that we'll have to wait to get into until later. So there you go, dear listener. There are our biases. We're generally pro for Hairspray. And uh, we like it quite a bit and having a good time with it. But we also want you to be part of the conversation with us all through those va- ma- yeah, magical means. Those vast and magical means. Vast magical means of social <laughs> media magical means do, of do you want media? me to take over now <laughs> would Dustin? you please start, start yeah I'm done. <laughs> i'll tag myself in because this is the part where i do my thing hi uh this is the the business corner it's me dalton here with business corner um <laughs> do you want to be part of uh the, the journey that is a uh, good trash genre cast and good trash media as a whole well here's how you can do that uh head on over to twitter we're at good underscore trash that is everything good trash media related whether it's this show uh, or the praise down, or anything else we happen to create, written articles, other podcasts we end up producing. Uh, yeah, that, that's the place to do it, at good underscore trash for all that short-term feedback. You can also check out a lot of fun polls that Arthur runs over there. He and I both do our best to share uh, you know, really interesting uh, film writing that we, we like. We, we try to share other, uh, uh, other uh, critics and, and creative types just uh, sharing their thoughts on film. So uh, if, if that's something you're into, we're over there at good underscore trash and also a great place for uh, short feedback. If you've got longer form feedback, maybe you want to uh, present your uh, your book, your music and lyrics for uh, the musical uh, about good trash that you're writing. Uh, you can submit that over at good trash genre cast uh, at gmail.com. Uh, we are also on Facebook. That gets very, oh, Arthur, yes, Arthur. What does a genre cast musical look like? no idea but absolute madness i assume oh it's gonna be a lot of punk rock yeah i'll tell you right now god if only uh yeah real spring awakening vibe huh is that what you're going for so uh that is going to be good trash at gmail.com we are also on facebook which uh you know is not as active as the twitter but we do check it so that's going to be facebook.com forward slash gtm if you want to do something over there uh most importantly just uh spread the word you know that that's how we get more listeners is you telling people you like about this show uh letting uh people who like film know that there's a good film podcast out, out in the world for them uh, arthur stumbled across a rogue recommendation of this show on reddit recently and that was a hoot um that just made me feel good yeah it was cool yeah it was really nice so yeah however you like spreading the word about things please 
feel free to do that. Uh, that is the only way that more people listen to this show is if you, the listener, uh, spread the word. So that means the world to us and also allows you to uh, be part of the fun without having to be online because we all know that's a nightmare sometime. Last but certainly not least, if you are inclined to support the show financially, uh, you can do that over at patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's where all of our fun bonus content uh, shows up, stuff like... Oh, um, are fired up or our discussion of Netflix new releases. Sometimes we'll, we'll do those over there, uh, such as, uh, you know, you got your first taste for free over here uh, at the main podcast feed when we talked about Bright. But we've also talked about Mute, and that is a Patreon exclusive. So if you want to hear us talk about that junk, Duncan Jones. Junk was correct. Yeah. J- junk and Jones is if you want us, right. If you want us to figure out how a director as good as Duncan Jones made a movie like Mute, um, or at the very least try to parse through what he might have been trying to do, uh, you can go check that out over at the Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash GTM. Um, for as little as, how much a month can they hear that, Arthur? I think a dollar? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like entry a, level. Entry level, yeah. If you want us to uh, find you a bargain bin Blu-ray uh, curated to your tastes or just something we'll, we think is interesting, that's a higher level. There's all kinds of fun stuff over there. So go check it out, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, and, of course, uh, if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the show, uh, however you get this in your ear, whether at Stitcher Radio or the Apple Podcast app, we would also appreciate that. And now Business Corner is over. Uh, time to do more interesting things. The more interesting thing at this time is it's time to play the game. Two triple it might feel good. It might sound a little something. But damn the game if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we are back, dear listener, with this week's game, which is Cult Directors We'd Like to See Make a Musical. That's right, Cult Directors We'd Like to See Make a Musical, brought to you by Hairspray. Hairspray. Technically, this cult director didn't make a musical into a few years later when he made Crybaby, but, you know, it works for the gameplay. Not fair enough. So uh, there you go, dear listener. We're going to play that game. Arthur, what is your number first pick? Uh, director, you'd like to see make a musical. I kept thinking about this movie a lot, and I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, I think Jared Hess of Napoleon Dynamite, Nacho Libre, Gentleman Broncos uh, could do something really quirky and Interesting. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got a very interesting uh, sense of humor. And a very interesting way of putting things together. And I think a film, you know, in the vein of Napoleon Dynamite that's just got these musical numbers that are just kind of outlandish and bizarre would really work. And I think he's got the sensibilities that could pull that off in a believable way. Uh, That would be really fun and probably develop a cult status around the film itself. And so I think Jared Hess would be my first pick. Awesome. I like that very much. Dalton, what's your number first pick? My number first pick is uh, a little bit on the nose and obvious, especially uh, after last week's game, films that we want to, cult films we want to see adapted into musicals, um, which, you know, Hairspray is one of those movies. Um, but uh, we talked last week uh, when we were talking about The Little Shop of Horrors that Eraserhead would make a, a great uh, cult film to be a musical. Well, look, we all know David Lynch making a musical would be just about the greatest thing that ever happened. And, uh, Look, the man's in his mid-70s. We've only got so many more Lynch, early 70s. We've only got so many more Lynch movies in the bag, and I think a musical would be a real fun turn. Um, because there's already a, a very musical sense to his work, uh, whether you're talking about uh, season three of Twin Peaks, a.k.a. Twin Peaks Return. Um, I, I know that is, uh, I have not got to watch that yet, but I'm aware that that's kind of notable for a lot of really big needle drop and musical cues. Uh, obviously, music plays 
really heavily throughout Racerhead, but also Blue Velvet, um, and even Mulholland Drive to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I there really is a musicality to his films that I, I feel like uh, him doing a musical proper is not that big of a stretch. And I, I think, look, it, it's Lynch. You know it's going to be weird, and usually in a fun way. So, yeah, that's my first pick. Dustin, what about you, bud? Excellent, excellent. So um, the use of the needle drop very, very well. And also, uh, we've Dalton and I have had this conversation before, and Dalton has often said that martial arts films are simply musicals for the masculine taste, right? And so I'm just Big time. That ability to choreograph good fight work to make that into something more dance and to use more music and to deal with whatever sort of, you know, maybe sort of cyberpunky kind of themes one might want to deal with. And I'm looking at the Wachowskis right now. Ooh, I, yeah. I, I don't know what that movie is. I wouldn't I wouldn't begin to suggest the property that I would want them to work on. But I want to see the Wachowskis musical. That would be excellent. There's there's something fun with filmmakers like Wachowskis where they, they reach a certain amount of uh, – fame and success and still manage to be cult directors to some extent because they refuse to uh, make their work more accessible. And I kind of like that. So, yeah, the Wachowskis uh, musical, the musical, whatever that looks like. So there's number first, first round, uh, number next. No, Arthur. I'm Arthur. Thank you for insulting me. Hey, buddy. Uh, My second pick is going to be... We're just going to fly right by that, huh? Yeah, we're going to. Okay. We're going to keep walking on down the track, uh, just like Stand (laughs) By Me. so mean to me today. Um, It's a real Jerry O'Connell day for me. (laughs) Jesus. Would you rather be Jerry O'Connell or Will Wheaton? Oh, God. Yeah, I know those are my two picks. Or Corey Feldman. Ooh, yeah. I you're think a Feldman. I might be Feldman. You're a Feldman. Yeah. He's totally a Feldman. Damn. You're a, you're a Phoenix. Oh, he's clearly River Phoenix. Definitely. Yeah. I'm Will Wheaton. Yeah, okay. That checks out. Yeah. I'm going to be narrating my life by Richard Dreyfus in 30 years. Uh, my second pick, Heap though. and Alex are both Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> Just combined. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second pick, though, is going to be Karen Kasama. Uh, Hell yeah. Jennifer's Body and uh, Girl Fight and uh, Aeon Flux, which we've recently the talked invitation. about. The Invitation. And the invitation, uh, but I, I, I'm thinking specifically of Jennifer's body, which I think could lend itself it, uh, in, in its form now as to some musical numbers that make complete sense. And so I, I, I think thinking about this, I thought about directors who had made work that could easily incorporate music into those works as they already are. Yeah. And I think Osama uh, just has, uh, again, that kind of eye and ingenuity uh, to be able to put this in and allow it to kind of have this comedic effect and this dark humor and... Um, would really add a layer to her work. And I think she could play with the form in really interesting ways and construct something that would be really memorable and really vivid and just funny and uh, maybe a little scary or dark, you know, whatever direction she decided to go with it. And uh, I think it'd be a good time. So Karen Kasama has got my vote for number two. Excellent, excellent. Or number next. Number next, that's right. Number next for you, Dalton Stewart. Let's say you. Uh, I also kind of went that route, Arthur, and tried to think about directors, obviously, with Lynch, you know, where there's already a musicality to the filmmaking. And uh, so my next pick is going to be Spike Jones. Um, you know, both in terms of not only the musicality of his films, but there's a real... Uh, the production design and artistic direction of his films already feels kind of musically, whether we're talking about something like Her or being John Malkovich or Where the Wild Things Are, there's already kind of this uh, magical realism quality to his films that, uh, I, I mean, musicals almost by definition kind of have to have a little bit of that magical realism uh, weaved throughout the narrative because it just makes it work a little bit better, honestly. Uh, I think that is, when you look at the musicals that uh, are near and dear to people's hearts and that like have real, like, cultural legs, as it were, you know, real 
uh, endurance in the, in the popular imagination. I think a lot of those musicals are not things like uh, The Music Man, which, uh, you know, there's a little magical realism there, but things that are even more kind of dreamy, uh, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just uh, I feel like uh, Jones has, has got it. And again, this is somebody who's directed a shitload of music videos and knows his way around a song and dance number. So that is my next pick. Uh, look, those are some really great music videos that guy has made. We're just saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, my number next pick is I was thinking about films like uh, Hairspray, films that are uh, that would lend themselves well to some of those jukebox style kind of uh, musicals, mm-hmm. uh, filmmakers who are interested in music, who are good at making things with comedy, and those. And I, I, I was. Th- Penelope Spears, Wayne's World, uh, the uh, Decline of Western Civilization documentary. Oh wow, yeah. I, I think I think she would do a, an excellent job putting together sort of a rock and roll musical, especially uh, you know sort of in the vein of uh, like your Moulin Rouge kind of thing, where you're working out bits of other sort of known bits of music. So here we are now, entertain us, but working that into a different sort of narrative kind yeah. of frame. I I, th- I think she'd absolutely nail it, and she would nail the comedy in a much more strong way yeah. uh, than Baz Luhrmann does. And so uh, Penelope Spears is. Uh, my number next pick for that. Number last, Arthur Gordon. What say you? I'm going to go with Kevin Smith. Um, okay. He, Interesting. You know, yeah, he's a guy that... In Late any, of filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in any phase of his career has kind of done, you know, say what you will about him as a director now, uh, especially dealing with some of his stuff. But he's still made some interesting choice if you look at something like Tusk or uh, Red State, even compared to, you know, especially his early 90s stuff, which was just... Clerks was groundbreaking in, in a lot of ways. Um but again, he's got these sensibilities. I think that kind of the worlds that he builds kind of lend themselves to this kind of anti-realist. You know, Mallrats could easily have those musical numbers in him, I think. And uh, Clerks even, I think. You, I could easily see either one of those movies being turned into an off-off Broadway musical yeah, for sure. easily. And so I think I, I, it's just that sensibility about him that he has for kind of playing with these different genres. And under, I mean, he's very well-versed in film and he understands the different genres and how they work and function. And I think he would be able to construct something that's got his quirky sense of humor about it and could be really campy or really cheesy or it could be more serious. He's got that versatility when he wants to have that versatility and when he wants to work. And so I think Kevin Smith could do some interesting things with the musical format. I like that pick a lot. Okay, your number last pick, Dalton Stewart. What say you? My final pick is, uh, look, I kind of have to make the case for this filmmaker as a cult director because they've only directed one movie, but it's going to be Corey Finley of this year's Breakout Thoroughbreds. That's a fair cheat, I think. I think so, because I think Corey Finley is kind of positioned to become a cult filmmaker with Thoroughbreds being, you know, kind of a a hit in terms of, like, the film community. I didn't see what its its numbers were, so I don't know if it crossed over at all, but I don't don't know that it was huge. I doubt it did. Yeah, but that's a film that's going to find some love in later years, I think. And that, again, speaking of films with musicality, that is a film where music is huge. And um, there is a a fluidity to the camera in that film that I I think shows an eye that would lend itself well to filmed musical numbers. Uh, And, uh, yeah, I just, I really see Thoroughbreds uh, as stylistically something that fits well within the style of a musical. And uh, I can really see those skills transferring over to being something very interesting and very different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's my pick. Obviously, Corey Finley's got some uh, experience in the theater. I don't know that uh, he ever worked in musical theater, though. Yeah. Uh, but he's got that playwright experience. So I, I, I think there's something there, though. Yeah. Well, and, and in that same vein, I think Alex Garland yeah. could do it, too. Interesting. I, I think about Ex Machina. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That has those kind of moments anyway that has that dance sequence oh, with so Oscar good. Isaac, um, which is, you know, brilliant. 
Uh, but I'm yeah, about to rip up this fucking dance floor. You check it out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Corey Finley's a great a great pick. Well, and, and the sort of a similar kind of vein. I'm going to pick sort of a cheap director, I think, okay. because I don't think quite cult. Although uh, you can't pick Scorsese, the, no, because he's already done one. <laughs> he's already done a musical. Yeah. Uh, but no, the, started out uh, making sort of culty kind of genre kind of films, and has really, if you look at the filmography, has moved across various sundry genres. Genres, uh, and so I'm looking at Ryan Johnson. Uh, with his work with Brick. Yeah, it is hard to make the case for him as a cult Looper, director now. You know, but now that he's done a Star Wars movie, yeah. but I'm like, he's very, very versatile and conversant with genre yeah. conventions and tropes, and knows how to play with him in an interesting kind of way. I don't know what he would do, but I, I would trust him with the reins to do Well, that. especially something like Brothers Bloom, which yeah. is already, again, it got that magical realism, that anti-reality we've been talking about that is kind of essential for a musical. That is something that he has shown an aptitude for in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Ryan Johnson would be my number last pick, then, uh, for a director I'd like to see make a musical. Dear listener, we'd love to hear what you want to see, who you want to see working uh, behind the camera to perform a uh, musical uh, extravaganza before your very eyes. So, let us know uh, via those magical means of social media already mentioned at the top of the show. Let's move on, though. I think it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. It's business. It's business time. Oh, and we are back to give you some business right now. Which is different than Business Corner, uh, which came earlier. <laughs> it's a totally separate thing. Do, do, do. Duke is well, well, well. Duke is swell, swell, swell. Nodding hell, hell, hell. Ow. There's so much singing. That, that was happens. beautiful. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that was excellent. Yeah, I didn't know the, the lyrics to jump in with you, but that was fabulous. Well, that was actually a joke from uh, The Critic. Uh, yeah, oh. that's not actually the Duke of Little yeah, Song. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a joke. Uh, there's a, a Ted Turner esque uh, operator of the the station that <laughs> his name is uh, Duke something, and uh, for some reason he gets uh, four old presidents to sing uh, stuff to him. I can't remember the exact joke. But I that's really, the, I would really wish I had found that show uh, while it was still on. Like I'm barely aware of it. That show was money. Seemed maybe an episode. That's a great show. Ahead of its time. Yeah. Fun times. Well, hey, we're going to move into this analysis, though, of Hairspray. And the first thing I think we have to talk about when we talk about John Waters in general and uh, then other directors by extension is the aesthetic. And we've already mentioned the sort of cheapness to it, the sort of intentional cheapness and the ways in which uh, bits of uh, 60s culture are being celebrated, but not the, the bits that we necessarily canonize. Uh, so it's the bad parts of the hair, the bad parts of dress. It is the, uh, the sort of tacky things uh, that are going on. And this aesthetic is sometimes known as camp, right? Which we got a little bit of our toes into with uh, Frank Oz's Little Shop of Horrors last yeah, week. There's a little campiness to it at but, times. Uh, yeah, not... Definitely not to the extent that there is in this film, for sure. And camp, you know, as any aesthetic, you know, is really, really hard to nail down. It's really hard to sort of trim it down. I will, I will point out that Susan Sontag has a great essay called Notes on Camp. There's about 25 different aesthetic notes on camp. And one of the things about camp is it is this desire to look for that which is debased, right? Mm -hmm. To look for that which people don't appreciate the most. You know, one of the, one of the arts that, that, that she talks about that uh, sort of camps, uh, camp sort of aficionados love is the gothic novel. And not the gothic novel in sort of like the Tim Burton kind of sense where you just love those, uh, you know, dark, moody kind of tropes. But the fact that they're just, they're ridiculous, you know, that they're, and, and it's just sort of the joy 
in the ridiculousness of those moments. And that's really what we see here in this film is this real just rejoicing and just – you remember how – you know, kitschy and uh, kitschy gets very, very closely related to camp as well. But you just remember how ridiculous we were in the sixties and the things that we cared about. And so we can talk about Ricky Lake's hair. We can talk about the dress choices and uh, those kind of things. But we think about camp, you know, another example that maybe we can sort of uh, open up the conversation is the original Batman TV series Mm -hmm. is a good way to think about camp. So uh, what do you guys, uh, what is your understanding? Where are you guys at with camp and campiness in uh, hairspray? Well, I think even uh, another expression of camp, uh, a a place, Place where camp is alive and well is in drag performance, right? Yes, uh, and I, I think that gets carried over into all of Waters' early work through Divine. Uh, mm-hmm. The casting of Divine is a very specific choice to embrace and relish in camp a little bit, uh, because you know, again, uh, as in terms of great American forms of entertainment, uh, there is they don't come any uh, more American and any campier than drag queens and pro wrestling, uh, right? And you know, the two like really easy examples to kind of understand camp i think or um i think those are two great places to start especially again camp does almost feel very um very specifically american uh, mm-hmm. in ways that are interesting to me and, and again using um and, and again with with roots in a european vaudeville a little bit right. but um I, I think there's just a really interesting choice throughout uh, early john waters films but specifically hairspray to integrate camp into this celebration of his youth, right? And it, as you said, there is a certain amount of engaging with the forgotten uh, and the kitsch uh, of a time period when you're looking at camp. Uh, and we were just talking about this off air uh, about the song choices in this film. They're all songs that were were hits, but they were kind of one hit wonders. Like, give me, give me gravy tonight. You know, yeah, they're honestly. not really well remembered songs, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, and I think that in of itself really kind of signals you to what is going on here, right? It, it is Waters engaging with the, the forgotten kitsch of a, of a bygone era. Right, and there's a certain, like, performativity to every aspect, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Divine and the drag performance that's going on there. And uh, Sontag writes that you never see a lamp, you see a lamp in quotation marks. You never see a mother, you see a mother in quotation marks. And that's part of what that camp aesthetic is. There's an intentional caricature to yes. some extent. Yeah. yeah, and so, like, you, you're... When you're doing something in camp, you're doing it as a stand-in. There's a certain acceptance that, of course, this isn't real. Of course, this is not what a real mother is, but I'm playing a mother, right? And so this is a this is a movie, but it's like almost a movie in quotation marks. Yeah, everything right? is turned up to 11 and put in quotation marks. Yeah. yeah, and so there's something that goes on there. There's also this, uh, again, this real sort of playing up the melodrama. I mean, the, the, the sort of uh, the performances, especially Divine's performance, but there's a way in which it's like overwrought and melodrama dramatic to such an extent that it's it it looks like i'm not acting i am quote unquote acting i think it's a big part of why teen stories lean themselves lend themselves to camp so well because uh any time you're engaging with uh stories of teenagers you're talking about uh melodrama and uh life or death uh, emotions about issues that are not actually life and death sometimes um now again, in, in this film, there's a there's a bomb in a wig, so sometimes it is actually life and death. But <laughs> I, I think uh, teenager stories lend themselves to camp for that exact reason, Dustin, because right. it allows your storyteller uh, to to dial up that melodrama in a really effective uh, way that's not super invasive to the story itself, because it's it's teens, and teens are a great way to build a camp story um, in, in a way that I think is interesting. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I would say one of the things that is going on with the teen story, too, is that camp is interested in arts that are a bit more surface mm. than they are typically content. And you see this film, we're not engaging with the lyrical content of, say, Duke of Earl or even even Town Without Pity, which could have been a real interesting sort of uh, thematic way to, to deal with this idea of, of you know, uh, teenage sexuality and those kind of things. Is not That musical drop is not happening in that sort of sense at all. Uh, camp, as uh, Sontag writes, is much more interested in fashion and fabric and surfaces and decor. And and so as a teen film, uh, again, the, we're talking about the most vapid generation or the most vapid decade of your life is your teens. And you are very, very wrapped up with the service levels. How does my hair look? What exactly am I wearing? What exactly is the design of my bedroom, dorm room or whatever? And so this film, you can see this real sort of attention to surfaces, but not attention to surfaces in like a Wes Anderson, you know, Doll's House kind of sense or this sort of lush Visconti kind of sense if you're looking at Italian film. But looking at surfaces, like what are these sort of really, really just awful but wonderfully, you know, of the moment uh, fabrics that we can use, uh, styles that we can use to sort of bring that sort of – you know that that thrift shop kind of aesthetic back out. Yeah, the real. I, I was going to say uh, beautiful grotesque, but that's almost the wrong way to put it. Yeah, but it, it's finding things that uh, the society at large might cast off as not being aesthetically pleasing and and bringing aesthetic pleasure to those things. Right. Right. It's different from like the sort of uh, '80s nostalgia that we're experiencing right now, where we're trying to find like the best parts of the '80s that people really really dig on. And uh, so you know, there's that. You know, Stranger Things kind of techno music. You know, there's a sort of VHS retro technology kind of aesthetic that's coming back. But what Camp would seek to do is go through those old yearbooks and go, what are the worst things that people are doing? I mean, they're, they're the most definitional of the time. Mm-hmm. But, like, how bad can we make the hair? Right. How big can we make the bangs? How loud can we make the day glow shirt? You know, that's more of a camp aesthetic than the sort of, again, postmodern nostalgic uh, kind of quirk. It's a different thing. Yeah. yeah, This twee thing that we're doing now. So uh, there you go. There's uh, just some ideas on camp. Now let's talk about the big thematics. This movie's about integration, but is it? Question mark. (laughs) Maybe a little, maybe a little not. So it's depicting a story. Not the traditional sense that it's depicting. No, yeah. I mean, it's depicting the thing that does happen, right? Correct. So television, super segregated, right? Clubs where uh, white kids and black kids, where they were allowed or not allowed to dance yeah. together. It was a big thing. It, but what, what else? Let's just talk about Penny for a minute. So Penny ends up in an interracial marriage with Seaweed. Right, which yeah. is a great name for a kid. Well, don't marry them off already. They're 16. Dating. Well, okay. They're just dating. They're in a relationship, though. Yeah. Well, at one point, uh, the, the, there's reference to Ricky Lake's boyfriend as her, as his, as her common-law boyfriend. <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot about that line. Yeah. And uh, so there's a weird way in which these uh, relationships are sort of stand-ins for something a little bit bigger anyway. There, there well, is... when you're 16, I think you're expecting to marry your partner anyway. Uh, you make right. a strong argument there. There is a lot of, like, really wacky dialogue that is thrown like oh, a yeah. law boyfriend that is just completely thrown out there and yeah. moved past that I really appreciate. Yeah. Uh, but you make a good point. It's not explicitly about that, though, right? Right. So the, the problem is is that Penny is dating the wrong kind of boy. So what do her parents do in reaction to that? They get her into therapy. I am not aware of ever there existing any time in, in American history uh, sort of anti-interracial attraction therapy. But I 
am aware of other kinds of therapy. Are you boys picking up on them landing? You were talking yep. about conversion therapy. Yes. yes. Yeah. That uh, definitely was a thing in the 80s, definitely was a thing in the 60s, and is definitely something Waters wants to engage with. And who is the grossest, weirdest character in this movie? It's the conversion therapist. Waters uh, himself. Waters himself, yep. who will always play the creepiest, weirdest, grossest person because uh, he doesn't mind embarrassing himself, which I love about him. Uh, but yeah, having the, the face of... Uh, White, normalized America, you know, whatever the the real, I don't know, what's the best way to articulate this, uh, the the real hegemonic ideal, right, uh, of, uh, of white 60s America, having the outgrowth of that group's fears being the scuzziest character in the movie is a definitely uh, intentional choice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to have this gross guy come in with his weird mustache and his, uh, his uh, spinny hypnosis wheel uh, and being a real perv. Um, there's an intentional choice there to say anybody that would ever deign to change who someone is is not to be trusted for any reason. Absolutely. And it does, again, code this in a way that this, this film becomes much more queer very, very quickly. Yeah. That, yes, we're talking about, well, you know, black and white sort of integration, miscegenation, those kind of things. But really, actually, we're talking about gay marriage. We're really talking about just the presence of homosexuality. We're talking about a time in the 80s where we're fighting very hard just for acceptance to exist, right? Yeah. You know, not even affirmation at this point. And for him to say, isn't this ridiculous and gross? Hey, by the way, I'm not really talking about this, and I think you kind of know. You know, that's what's happening there. Also, I think the casting of Divine really helps play into this, this idea yeah. of gender fluidity. I mean, Divine is not trans in any way. Uh, you know, he identified as a man. He was a drag queen. Yeah, that's, it's a different thing. Yeah, it, it's a different thing altogether. But the fact that the, the, the character, the actor, plays characters of different genders and that sort of fluidity working in the film does provide some traction to the idea of like, listen, we just have to learn to deal with situations that are different instead of making something we comment on. Yeah. It's just, it's a thing that's there. You just accept people who, as they are. Right. In which the, shouldn't be that hard of an idea. Yeah, which is all within the veneer of a film about you not accepting people who they are and not, you know, just playing together, you know, whatever, doing the game of life together. Well, and I think what that leads us to is a, a line of dialogue that Arthur and I were uh, messaging each other back and forth about is where uh, Link says to um, Ricky Lake's character, oh my gosh, why can't I think of Miss Turnbull's first name? Tracy. Tracy, jeez. Link says to Tracy, our skin might be white, but our souls are black. Uh, and that is where John Waters uses the way, hey, you ever notice how uh, segregation like opens up places for allies to be gross too? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting place for him to play and honestly not a huge conversation in the late 80s that's honestly a bit of dialogue that like is so far ahead of its time it kind of takes you out of the movie for a second because you have to unpack it right uh and again i think arthur i don't know about for you i know this is a line you and i both thought about a lot but the more i thought about it the more i felt like it was it was a comment on how white kids have a tendency to really give themselves over to a culture that is not theirs yeah. uh, in in the pursuit of being a good person. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting choice, right? Yeah, they just don't know where to stop. And I, I, it's definitely an interesting conversation this year. I think cultural appropriation has kind of definitely come up in a big way, especially with uh, Wes Anderson's new movie, Olive Dogs, has opened up that conversation mm-hmm. in interesting ways, especially everything that's just been happening, I think, in Hollywood and with all the different kind of social movements we have right now that it's something that we've got to kind of keep an eye on. But, I mean, I was kind of that kid, too, when I was 16, and I was getting into hip-hop, and like, oh, Same, buddy, yeah. Yeah, I want to dress like this, and then I had to realize, no, I'm, I'm white, 
I'm yeah. as white as it gets. You're allowed to like hip hop. Yeah. You're allowed to like uh, things that are not your culture. You just there's an, a, a respectful and appropriate way to do that. Yeah. And so I yeah I don't think uh, Waters meant anything by it. I think it's a great line and a great little uh, bit of commentary in the film, and I think it works very well. Uh, and yeah, I don't think it's uh, anything harmful by it. And I think it's just something that is very important to keep in mind, especially today. I mean, because it's something that we still definitely deal with. Absolutely. Day. And I think what it does, it opens him up at to back to Dustin's point. I think it allows him to open up the movie and say. We're working on multiple levels here. This is not just about one thing. We are talking about the ways in which we draw lines around each other yeah. and the way that prevents us from interacting interacting and engaging with each other in like real humanistic ways. Yeah. Uh, because when we focus on these, these lines between us, uh, you can both be gross about that um, and enforcing those lines, and you can be gross in the ways you want to take those lines down. Uh, there is... Anytime you insist on putting borders and boxes around people, you're going to invite situations in which people get nullified down to an idea instead of being a, a real person. Or a I set think. of cultural reference. Exactly. Know? I mean, I, I heard, I've heard people in my life say, well, I'm actually blacker than that guy is. I'm like, no, you're not. That's, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it is narrowing somebody down to an idea of or uh, what was the, the way you just put uh, it? Uh, just a set of cultural reference. Yeah, know, that's like a perfect way to put it. it. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to put it's it. It's like, no, just because I listen to more hip-hop than somebody else who happens to be African-American does not make me any no nope that's not how it works that is not how that works and And again i I think it's really interesting of waters to uh talk about that it shows somebody who has an interest in uh advancing social conversations through their stories uh and and that's that's just good filmmaking and anytime you're going to layer something that deep and try to ask people to think about both race and sexuality and you know all these myriad ways that uh we, we draw boxes around each other Allowing those things to kind of overlap and flow in and out of each other in, in your storytelling is it's an interesting choice. Uh, there's another thing that's working on, again, it, just this sort of intersectional la- layers of this film that is sort of body image issues, right? Ricky Lake's weight, um, specifically. There is a, there, I mean, it, there's a way in which it's never really commented. I mean, there's definitely lots of fat, shamey jokes that happen regarding Lake. But the thing that I find interesting is that there's no one else having the conversation besides the obviously sort of evil characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the villainess, uh, um, you know, perfect high school cheerleader girl. I forget her, for Von Tussle. Amber. Amber Von Some Tussle. very Willy Wonka names in this movie. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. It's very funny. But uh, besides her little commentary here and there, there's never really this uh, – a girl who's overweight cannot be a TV star. Yeah. You know, which is the thing I kept waiting for them to say. Yeah. And and they never, ever went into that. that yeah. That, that, that's sort of the ideal situation, this ideal world, uh, is that, that villains think this way, but other people don't. Yeah. And I, I, and I sort of love that. Yeah, I, I really appreciate about the film and the way they handle Tracy's character because it's easy to let her become the butt of the joke uh, running throughout the film. And in less capable hands, it probably would have been. Um, but with Waters as this type of outsider himself, I mean, he easily identifies with the plight of uh, the marginalized. And I think letting Tracy be this super confident, successful hero that she's making out with the hot guy on, on the, you know, whatever, the dance floor. Yeah. Um, she owns the, so- the social situations that she's in. And I, I think there's a lot of power uh, that can come from that. And I, I really appreciated that take on the character and letting it work that way. Because going in, I was kind of thinking she's going to be the butt of the joke because she's mm-hmm. the bigger girl. She's, you know, obviously that opens itself up to 
a social commentary where she's just the butt of the joke and let's all laugh at her. But it's not that. And we get to cheer her on because she's proud, she's strong, she's smart, and she's capable. Yeah, Tracy's unflappable. She, yeah. Anytime somebody tries to uh, use her size in a negative way, she, she doesn't allow it in, yeah. in a way that's really interesting. And other people don't either uh, yeah. when they're doing the uh, the tryouts, the council thing, right? Uh, when the Von Tussle or whatever yeah. her Corny name. Collins goes, you're yeah. suspended. Yeah. You don't get to talk do to that people here. like that. Yeah, uh, and, and creating, for the most part, that kind of place of you know inclusion for some people. Um, you know, there was, it was really nice, uh, because I, I kind of in that moment expected all of them to criticize her, but they don't. And he kind of, uh, waters subverts that expectation there. And I appreciate that, that take and letting it play out that way. I kept waiting for Link to be using her because he knew she was going to be the one with the close ups, And it never happens. That's why he was interested. No, he genuinely loves her. Yeah. And the, just yep, I'm in love he with this. knows she's a better person than Von Tussle. Yeah, and then that's all. It, that's all yeah. he needs. And it's another way that Waters speaks to this idea that um, the, there is a uh, an upper middle class white cultural hegemony that will always try to enforce its standards on the marginalized, uh, as you put it, Arthur. Uh, and John Waters finds a really interesting ways to just subvert that throughout the entirety of this movie is saying, no, there are always going to be these Von Tussles. There are always going to be people who are trying to say, you have to do things the way we think you should do them. Whether it's, this is the type of body that's appealing. This is the, the type of skin color that's acceptable. This is the type of dancing and music that's acceptable. There's always going to be people trying to enforce norms of some kind. And it's going to be groups of weirdos who like to dance on camera that uh, push the needle forward. And I, I think... As we were talking about this, you have – I realized it's interesting that you have the character of Corny Collins always saying, no, we want this show to be more and better and more inclusive. And it's it's not the person running the show. It's the money behind the person running yep. the show who is yep. resisting the change. Yeah. Uh, and that is a, a really interesting commentary on the ways in which art is created from Waters saying – the more money you rely on from other people, the more they're going to dictate what you can and cannot do and how and in what ways you subvert um, the, these ideals that are being forced on the culture. And this idea of subversion is really the last point I want to make in terms of trying to qualify this film full of nothing but he- homos- or heterosexual relationships as queer. And that is uh, one of uh, Amber Von Tussle's continued sort of attacks against uh, – Tracy's character is that she's got cockroaches in her hair and it's, mm-hmm. it's, and there's a long, you know, cockroaches in her hair and she does this cockroach dance. And of course what ends up happening at the end when uh, she's, uh, when uh, Ricky Lake is finally released from her little reform school jail is that she appears in this pink cockroach festoon. She has all the yeah. best outfits in this dress. movie. But it, that's, 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 the, that's the fundamental queer idea, is taking what would be a slur, this idea of being queer, which is a, which is a line that's dropped by Penny early yep. in the film, like yep. the, the bunch of queers or something like that that she says in a very for, very sort of backward kind of sense. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the film, we're saying these word roaches and you're a roachy person and you're gross. And she's like, yeah, here's my dress with roaches on it. It's great. And it's like, I'm going to take your word and it's going to be my label of pride. It's going to be my label of who I am and what I'm about. It's the synthesis of the water's aesthetic, honestly. Yes. It is a complete reclamation of all uh, John Waters, uh, you know, living in this uh, this time and place that says if you're a gay man, you're a creep. You're you're weird not to be trusted. And he goes, I will show you the creepiest man that has ever walked the face of the planet. Say hi to my weird, beautiful tailored suits and my weird, beautifully brushed mustache. Uh, yeah, it, it is a reclamation of, uh, of identity and, and something that I, I think you can see 
And again, I've only seen a handful of Waters movies, but in, in the films of his that I have seen, it does seem to be a, a thing that he reckons with a lot. And I think you're right. It, it is a great way to use subversion uh, in a way that's empowering and really interesting. So, well, there you go, dear Lich. We've had a fun conversation here. Yeah, it was a good time. Uh, about uh, this crazy film called Hairspray. If you've got some comments about that, we'd like to hear it via those magical means of social media. We've already mentioned the show, but let's render a verdict. Shell for trash. Elser instead. It's got the criterion treatment, so I'd be curious to see what you guys say. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shell for trash with Hairspray? Elser instead. Look, let's be real. I, I, I can't shelf Little Trash of Horrors and not shelf Hairspray. I, I think it's doing a lot more, and I think it's doing a lot more uh, commentary and doing it a lot better ways. And it doesn't fall into some of those same pitfalls that uh, Little Shop of Horrors does, sadly. Uh, so I'm going to say uh, shelf. Uh, and with it, I've already name-dropped these two movies, uh, but I think they just pair well uh, from narrative and, and production-wise, I think even uh, Napoleon Dynamite. I think pairs well here. It's kind of got that cult status. Is you know kind of got that smaller budget, and it, it, it's just an interesting film that is about nothing. And, and for the most part, I think that's where Hairspray stands. It, it's an interesting film that's really not about any. I mean, the plot is pretty minimal. Yeah. Um, it's like you said, it's kind of episodic and just kind of a day in the life style, style thing, and it doesn't go too over the top with its narrative choices. And the other one is Ocean's Eleven uh, because of that similar uh, plot aesthetic where it's just. Our characters set out to do something, and they do it, and they don't face any real challenge uh, within the narrative, uh, which is a very subversive style of storytelling. And so I think you put those three on together, and you have a fun little block of movie watching that could uh, make for some uh, right memories. I like that a lot very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Thank you for that. Mr. Dulcer, what do you say? You shell for trash, else or instead? I am uh, with Arthur and the Criterion Collection. I think you got to shelf this one. Uh, I, I think... It just, again, it, it avoids all the pitfalls uh, that Little Shop of Horrors did not manage to avoid by pointing out the ways in which um, this time period is kind of fraught with a lot of bad shit, and, but also celebrates it uh, and in ways that are really kind of beautiful and um, endearing. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, and again, it's a great uh, entry point into Waters as a filmmaker. It's a great entry point into camp cinema. It's a great entry point into queer cinema. Uh, again, although the film is not explicitly queer, um, it's in the subtext. And again, it's a John Waters film, and that's kind of an essential. Getting into his filmography is is kind of essential in getting into that that movement in cinema. So yeah, I think it's absolutely shuffleable. Not just for those historical reasons, also it's just fun. It's it's a real hoot to watch. Uh, what should you pair with it? What what makes for good pairing? Uh, well, obviously you should check out uh, the movie he did after this. His his actual musical proper, Crybaby. Um, Look, I, Johnny Depp being the star of that movie notwithstanding, it's fun. Uh, Crybaby's a lot of fun. Uh, Iggy Pop's a hoot in it. I mean, it, it, just like this film, it's got a completely stacked cast full of really amazing cameos. And um, there is something about a cult director that attracts really big names that want to be in one to three scenes of a cult director's movies. And I always love that uh, when a cult director gets a certain amount of clout within the industry. Um, the names that they tend to attract, I'm, I'm always fascinated by. So you definitely want to follow it up with Crybaby. I would also recommend the uh, the film version of the Broadway musical Hairspray. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I actually cannot speak to its overall quality. Uh, but I remember having a, a great deal of fun with it and, and just uh, you know, really enjoying it. It's got some good songs, some good dance numbers. Um, 
I cannot remember the name of the actress that plays Tracy Turnblad in that, but she's great. You've also got one of the last great Amanda Bynes performances in that movie because, um, you know, we don't get those anymore because uh, that's kind of a, a person that has gone off the grid a little bit uh, in, in terms of making stuff. And, man, I hope they're doing okay <laughs> because that is a, a performance that was a big part of my childhood. Uh, but, again, if only for those performances, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Alrighty, well, I am also going to say Shelf. I like this movie a lot. I think it's fantastic. If you're getting into waters, so I've got two different lists. So, guys, Hit so you're, me. you're just kind of get into waters. I think a next easy soft step in is Serial Mom. Uh, Kathleen Turner's great in that movie. It is an R-rated film. And then we'll move into his early work, his X-rated stuff. And I'm going to give two recommends. That you go ahead and check out Woman Trouble. Uh, which is going to be his uh, sort of lesbian comedy uh, that he's making. And it's really great, very, very hilarious stuff. And then get to Pink, Pink Flamingos. I think that's the way you work your way in. And then to work your way into real sort of avant-garde experimental kind of stuff that inspires him, look into the Kuchars, uh, George and Mike Kuchar, and uh, check out a little movie called Hold Me While I'm Naked, uh, which is uh, this ridiculous like homemade 8-millimeter movie filmed in their, in their mother's apartment with stolen bits of like Hollywood melodrama scores. It's Really, really fun. And so that's sort of your John Waters uh, primer. Now, in terms of campy movies, I want to make some campy movie recommendations, right? So you've, you've, Hit me. you've seen Hairspray. I want you to watch Johnny Guitar starring Joan Crawford, who is at her most bombastic. And she is a great camp icon. And it's a Western with Joan Crawford. Nicholas Ray's the director. It's got a lot of good style there. The guys, uh, Godard and, and whatnot, love that movie a lot. So check it out. And then to move forward a little bit. Man, I, I talk about this movie all the time because I just love it so much. But The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, it's a little Australian drag queen comedy. And Hugo Weaving, uh, uh, Guy Pierce. It's just fantastic. Uh, it's really great cast. A lot of fun. Uh, very, very sort of mature sort of wrestling with uh, that sort of status as a human being and as a, as a, as a, as a, in terms of gender and all that good stuff. And so I couldn't recommend that stuff more highly. That's a really long syllabus for me, but lots of stuff there uh, worthy of you checking out. So, dear listener, uh, take a look at that movie and have a good time uh, with it. Uh, Hairspray is something we've had a lot of fun with and we recommend it highly. And we're going to keep moving down this musical trance, we're going to do one more show. Uh, Arthur, what are we doing for the last show? Uh, well, for our last show of next week, uh, we're going to walk down Abbey Road. We're going to cross some strawberry fields forever, and we are going to take a ride in a yellow submarine as we go across the universe. Cuckoo-cachoo. That was very well done, Arthur. Thank you. I am, I'm very excited to talk about this movie. Uh, it's been, you are super... I'm surprised how hyped you are for this film. I saw this movie in theaters, man. Yeah. I, uh, I always wanted to see it. I Yeah, I... This movie came out like my junior year of high school, so it is kind of like firmly cemented uh, in, in my teen years. So I, I'm excited to revisit this movie. Do you dread it at all to rewatch it? No, I rewatched it a couple of years ago. Okay, uh, okay. Probably three or four years ago now, and I, I remember really still enjoying okay. it. Uh, I am curious. Uh, it's I, I remember it being a little long. That is one. Yeah, it's I, a little over. It's two fifteen, two thirty. It's over two, and I remember it dragging at points. Okay. But uh, the first like hour of this movie is just incredible. So for that, if only for that, I'm excited to revisit it. And I think it's got a lot of great performances. It's got an amazing Evan Rachel Wood performance, uh, and visually, it's just kind of spectacular. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited. I think we're gonna have a good time talking about this one because. Uh, we all like the Beatles. Dustin, I think, is the biggest maniac. But uh, I'm a Beatle maniac. And uh, it's never come up in the show, really. That's why he's got the bowl cut. I was. That's yeah, very it, good. It is the bowl. Thank cut, you for that, yeah. Arthur. It hasn't come up before. No. Um, but I know Arthur. I know you like the Beatles. Yeah. Um, so it'll be it'll be a fun talk and uh, yeah, just a, a good time talking about visually arresting covers. 
Nice. I like covers. So, well, there you go, dear listener. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggman. We're signing off, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning into the Good Trash Genre Cast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, go over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music is uh, made by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music is the song Hairspray by Rachel Sweet. <laughs> <laughs>